Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and it's our last show of 2022. Although some of you might be listening to this after the holidays and the new year, given all the distractions that come this time of year. Ben, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Chris. I'm taking a break from my job, putting the sprinkles on the holiday cookies just long enough to get this show in the can. And I know we've got a lot to cover today and also some great news to share. We do have some news to talk about. First, the Airlines Confidential News. As I shared in episode 165 that dropped on December 14th, this is going to be my last episode as co-host as I hang up my microphone and step away from the podcast after two fun years. And I'm absolutely delighted to share that we have definitely traded up Ben and my mutual friend, Scott McCartney, the former Middle Sea columnist and airline reporter for the Wall Street Journal, will be taking over the gig. And Scott is with us today. Scott, welcome and congratulations. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm thrilled and honored. Uh, you guys have created not only an interesting, informative podcast with a terrific following, but also, I think, an important industry resource. I'm impressed not only with with your discussions over the past two years, but also your fantastic and topical guests and great reader questions. So I'm nervous about it. You, you've set very high standards, and, uh, and I look forward to trying to live up to it, Chris. Well, Scott, maybe you're nervous, but I hope you're excited too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely thrilled, excited, and, and really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, since this is my last show, I get to run it and ask the questions. First, Scott, how's retirement? How's the transition been to not thinking about airlines every day and uh, not having to file a story? <laughs> well, um, it's been extremely busy. I did an event with the CEO of Southwest Airlines the other day and got introduced as somebody who had, uh, as Herb Kelleher used to say, flunked retirement. Um, <laughs> I, I've been um, I've been teaching uh, both a journalism course and a and a graduate public policy course at Duke University. I've been doing some events and consulting in the airline industry. I have a big volunteer job in Dallas and now taking on a, a podcast co-host role. So I have not been missing my weekly deadline. Um, I do miss the column and readers, but I don't miss having that weekly beast to feed. Uh, that's been really liberating and, and I've, I've loved it. All in all, retirement has, uh, has been very busy, but a great joy. So, Scott, as our podcast continues to grow in its audience, it's been fun being part of that success story and engaging with both our guests as well as our listeners, like you said. But why do you think there's so much fascination with the airline business, not just from people who work in the business, but from travelers, 
consumers, government, and the media. You've covered this industry for so long. Why do you think that is? You know, Chris, it's it's always been something that um, has has really intrigued me. I think it's because um, it is such a fascinating, complicated industry. It is unlike any other industry. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Herb before. Herb once, once said to me, you're never going to leave this business. Uh, what are you going to do? Go cover banking? Um, you'd be bored. And, and he's right. It's, it's unlike any other industry in, in that regard. Um, so many moving parts, so complicated. Uh, everything's done outside. Uh, everything that happens in the world affects airlines, storms, uh, political events, pandemics, you, you name it. And I think the, the airlines, they, they get people to their biggest moments in their lives, or they, or they just get them home so they can coach their kid's soccer team. We depend on them. We re- rely on them. And for many travelers, um, we don't understand them. Um, even people who work in the industry, I think, have, have, have their expertise, but are curious about other parts of the business. Um, and we all want to understand why things, I, I used to tell people my job was trying to explain why bad things happen to good travelers. But I think, I think fares and frequent flyer programs and schedules and operations, um, it can be bewildering to people, um, can be fascinating, but it matters to them um, quite deeply. And, and that's, the, that's the most important thing. There's always the challenge uh, for for road warriors of working the system, sometimes to great reward. The the rules can be confounding. um, And uh, so there is uh, always lots to talk about and try and explain. And the the challenges in this business are just like um, they're they're like none other. Well, teaching the university class that listeners know I do I'm very happy to also say that that passion exists in some of our youngest demographic, too, which bodes really well for the future of this industry. But, Scott, what you said reminds me of a joke that I'm sure many of our listeners have heard. A young guy gets hired at the local airport, and his job is to clean the bathrooms from the airplanes that come in. And every once in a while, things spill all over him and he gets dirty and smelly. And one day he goes home and he's all a mess and his parents say, why don't you get a job somewhere else? And he looks at him and says, what? And leave the airline business? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and you know, it's always been that because so many people experience aviation, they become an expert at it even when they're not, right? And so yeah. people have an opinion. People are very quick to criticize. Um, it impacts your life in so many ways, whether it be, like you said, the flight that departs late or the bad experience. Everybody thinks they have a better way to do it. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking as I was coming to LaGuardia a couple of weeks ago, obviously that new airport is – beautiful and a great improvement, but they've implemented this new baggage system. I think it's a Denver too, but I mean, people were just so frustrated with all these Mm. bins that were coming and going and getting separated so that, you know, your first bag came out and 10 minutes later, you're still looking for your second bag. 
and people who were behind you in line have left and got their bags and are up the escalator to their gate. And every person there had an opinion about what they were experiencing. And I yeah. think that is that is indicative of the airline business. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, for for people who travel, they they live on the airline. Um, for people who travel frequently, but even if you're an infrequent traveler, you want to know. You want to you want to understand it. Um, you 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 know. And they do look at uh, the bag is so late, and well, why can't these pe- people you know do a better job? Um, and it may be that they're doing a really good job, uh, but something else is is going on or affecting it. It is just so complicated. I, I don't know. I, I think that that drives a lot of the passion and interest. You know, relatively early in my career, I w- started to be in positions where I would speak directly to customers, often when they were quite upset about things the company did. And I always found that by relatively quickly turning the conversation to their problem from an airline business standpoint. And I would always ask them what their business was. And when they would start thinking of the airlines as a business, they still might not like what happened to them. But when they would think of it like a business, they might start to understand it a little better or put their problems in a little different perspective. So I'm not saying that that always helped solve the problem, but I will say that it always helped putting things um, sort of a scale that people could understand a little better. And that's made me realize that the more everyone involved with travel as a flyer, as a consumer, as a media reporter, as a government official, the more they understand the business, the better off we'll all be. Yeah, Ben, I I think that's so right. You know, a great example I I always used with with people, people would complain that they canceled my flight. There were so few people on it or the fares were so cheap, they canceled my flight. And, and, And yes, your flight got canceled, but have, did you think about what happens to that airplane on the other end? Um, you know, there may have been very light bookings on your segment, but the plane may be full coming back or wherever it's going on to. Um, and the and the aspect of, you, you know, you have to pay the crew and uh, all that kind of stuff. It was uh, that's a, an example where you can show people how complicated the business is. It's not just your flight. Um, but that plane may be making, you know, seven different flights that day. And if it's out of position, that's going to be. But then you take it and say, well, if you're in a hub and there's a storm and you need to thin out flights, uh, the airline may actually have gone looking for flights that are thinly booked um, to cancel. So, yes, your instinct was was perhaps correct, uh, but um, not necessarily because the airline was just trying to save money. Well, and something the industry has always struggled with is the, quote, over-regulation on the consumer side with regard to what the government tracks and what gets reported. And, you know, right now, Washington's talking about more regulation with regard to pricing and refunds and whatever else. But it's really getting back to your original point, Scott, which is the public's fascination elevates the industry into ways they may not always want 
because there's always so much discussion about it and because every member of Congress gets caught up in the same issues that the consumers do and they have canceled flights and they have experiences that frustrate them. And so it just continues to um, give fresh air and oxygen to more regulation that frustrates the industry. I think I've talked about it on the show previously, but I used to, when I worked in the business and try to cite these, these ideas where the industry's quote overregulated. One time when my daughter was an infant and she was sick and we took her to the pediatrician and it's like, she needs an IV, get her to the children's hospital. I, I just called over there. They're waiting for you to get this started. And we sat in the waiting room for almost seven hours. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking like, where's the government going to report this statistic? You know, yeah. people sitting on a tarmac, you know, have some, some recourse here and, and the, the airline's going to get fined. But where is the government here keeping track of how long we're sitting in this waiting room or how long we've been waiting for the cable guy to show up or whatever else? But there is a level of a different standard that this industry has to live with. Yeah, there is. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I always found interesting was uh, airline legislation. That was one of the very few places where Republicans and Democrats w- would line up in agreement. Um, it, you know, they, there have been different Congresses where they couldn't pass anything, but they could pass something about uh, airline yeah. customer service or, or whatever. And so... Even Republicans who are anti-regulation change the tune when it comes to airlines um, because it's politically popular to beat up on airlines. Well, they all have to fly home too, right? Right, right, (laughs) right. Well, Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who've been bringing you this podcast all year long. One of those is Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. And Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. So guys, lots of activity on frequent flyer programs these past few weeks as airlines tighten up the rules and privileges and raise the bar to achieve top-tier status after bending over backwards these last couple of years to keep their best customers close by. Airlines make these changes at their peril. Where do you think this is headed? Ben, you go first. Well, I think it's evolving, Chris. I don't think it's there yet. My sense is that the industry still doesn't fully understand what post-pandemic demand is. We all have a sense of where things are on the leisure side, the business side, where those things meet in the middle and such. But in general, the frequent fire programs have always served a real minority of the volume of the business. The people who fly the most, earn the most points in the programs, get the most rewards. 
And I remember when Scott Kirby was at American Airlines, he once stated that well over half their customers weren't even in the program. And so that seems to me a challenge as airlines are thinking about their loyalty programs as to how airlines can make them relevant for a broader piece of the traveling public. That doesn't mean that someone who only travels three times a year could get the same benefits as someone traveling every month or every few weeks, but it doesn't mean that that person has to be ignored by the program, and there may be some of that. So I think right now what we see happening is airlines trying to figure out how to keep the upper levels of the program, the ones that provide the most rewards to the people who are flying the most or using the credit card the most or just showing the airline love in the most number of ways possible. And that starts a process that over time, I think, may hopefully lead to them broadening the relevance of the programs as well. Ben, I, I, th- I think it's even, um, there's even more going on than that. As, as part of that evolution as airlines, and as airlines are trying to figure this out, I think the, the future and the purpose of the programs themselves is really in question. Frequent fire programs have gone from I think, from loyalty generators to revenue generators. And I think that's a significant shift that uh, airlines are still trying to um, figure out. Uh, If, you know, loyalty happens other ways now, corporate contracts, your hometown hub. Yes, status is still important for the very top tiers of the program, but the rest of the people in the program they could replace most of their status with a credit card. You can get the free check bags or the early boarding or things, things like that. So what matters to airlines in, in many ways now is, is the credit card matters more than the passenger. And the benefit of the frequent flyer program is coming from the miles that are sold to credit card companies, not necessarily from uh, the loyalty of the, of the customer who for, for, you know, as you noted, for most customers, it's still competitive markets and competitive fares. So it's going to be interesting to see how the rewards uh, can match uh, what the airline true motivation is here. I do think airlines will be under pressure from credit card companies to make it easier in some ways to, you know, those, those points that you earn with the credit card, they have to, they have to mean something to the consumer. Um, they have to be redeemable. And one of the things that's gone on is we've seen airlines do away with award charts, uh, make pricing much more dynamic. And while there are lower prices on some awards, there are a lot higher prices on, on other awards. And the risk here is, if miles become devalued too much, then credit card rewards may move in another direction. Scott, you're spot on on a couple of those things. And I want to add, airlines would be better served, I think, by just being more honest with their customers in the context mm-hmm. of why they're making changes. Instead, they're dressing, you know, American was dressing it up in the context of giving people more options and more choices when 
the loyalty media, the point sky folks and whoever else were pointing out the exact opposite. So I think people can understand the truth if you lay it out, but dressing it up as a, we're doing this for you and maybe two thirds of your customers don't see it that way. I is probably not the, the best tactic. Um, you know, you also pointed out loyalty programs have different meanings and purposes to different kinds of guests. Okay. Some people, the frequent, frequent traveler, probably the last thing they want is a free trip as much as the s- status that comes with being a frequent traveler and the upgrades and the extra treatment they're getting and whatever else. And so you've got some people who are collecting points for that dream vacation. You have another set of customers who are really driven towards status. And, you know, where do those two things collide? Um, because they're not always uh, in concert. I remember years ago, one of my proudest moments was making Terry Gross laugh on Fresh Air because we were talking about this. And she kept pushing, pushing, pushing. This was I was at US Airways about frequent flyer programs and points. And I said, you know, these are not mutual funds. These are not retirement funds. They're points to accrue and to spend. And for people who view them as just they collect them for no purpose other than to collect them. You know, we want the, the passenger to spend their points and enjoy what we're offering. And so, um, you know, how do you impress upon people? Look, don't sit on them forever, but spend them. Uh, even though probably airline financial guys don't want them spent, but um, there's, there's just a bunch of things going on that I think will continue to, like you said, evolve with, um, answer is not very apparent. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, uh, more, tr- more transparency would be really great. And, and yet we're seeing less of it, right? Take away the award chart and things like that. And some of the rule changes that we've seen uh, really make things quite complicated. W- one of the areas you know, where there's perhaps the least transparency is, is in upgrades. And that used to be such a driver. Uh, but now you, you can be platinum or whatever, at a very high level in programs, and you're still number 44 on the upgrade list. And great, there is an upgrade list uh, published now, or you get to the gate, you can see where you are. That's that's a welcome thing for travelers, um, and yet it's pretty depressing when you you know you you understand that you you, you never had a chance for upgrades. Um, and we're we're seeing you know post pandemic more. Uh, more interest in um, high-end leisure travelers and others buying seats in the front of the airplane. Uh, Delta's actually been pretty open about um, the percentage of of premium seats sold. And so there are fewer and fewer upgrades out there unless you're at the very top tiers, you're not getting them. So then then the question is, well, why do I need that status? Um, If I'm I'm never going to get an upgrade, and uh, all I really care about, all I'm getting is earlier boarding and baggage fees. Why not just use the credit card? Yeah, the best way to get the upgrade now is to move out of the hub. Mm. Right. It's, yeah. yeah. I, I remember watching uh, an upgrade list flashing up on the screen uh, this summer, and there were on a 737, there were 123 people on the upgrade list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, like, it's almost like, what's what's the point of even having one at that point? Because it, you know, first class is probably already sold out, let alone trying to 
get you a free upgrade. Right. Or they should publish the not on the upgrade list. <laughs> <laughs> well, the people not on the upgrade list are the people who who paid a couple hundred dollars extra to buy the seat that to no longer is available as that, an upgrade. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, Scott, since Ben is on the sideline for both of these issues, I want to ask you as it relates to JetBlue. What are your thoughts on the DOJ case against the AHF Blue Northeast Alliance? We're still waiting for a decision. It might come between now and when the show airs or soon thereafter. And do you see any major obstacles for the JetBlue acquisition of Spirit getting approved? Yeah, such interesting questions, Chris. Um, My initial thought uh, on all of this is just um, how weak American got in the Northeast that it had to do this. Um, I think it's really quite remarkable. You know, New York way back was Americans home and uh, and really Americans domain. And to go into the Northeast Alliance with JetBlue um, just shows that uh, Delta was kicking their butt with business travelers that uh, United and in Newark um, was really taking a lot of business and uh, and the weakness uh, from American having to team up with with JetBlue is really quite remarkable. Um, with the DOJ case, um, it's so interesting because uh, the alliance is already in place. I mean, how often do you do you see cases like this where it's already happening and we're we're looking at uh, sort of you know, a couple of years into it of um, whether this is a good thing or not. And JetBlue uses that. JetBlue says, uh, well, where's the harm in this? I think the judge is likely to give the Justice Department some remedies. I think there will probably be, you know, kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, probably some slots and gates um, made available for other airlines to try and uh, address competition concerns. And maybe the long-term benefits for for JetBlue uh, will be addressed so that, you know, as as the judge looks at it, so big, bad American can't take back all of its slots and facilities uh, after smaller JetBlue has invested in in building some of those routes. Um, So one of the remedies might be give JetBlue some kind of long-term security, an option to purchase slots uh, after... Um, however, after the length of time for uh, the alliance. And then American will have to decide if it's willing to live with those terms um, and uh, what price American is willing to pay for this. Um, uh, but I think American's really coming at this from a position of, of weakness. So it's really quite interesting. You know, once everybody seems to think once that gets solved um, uh, or ad- addressed, uh, then the JetBlue Spirit merger um, would move forward. You know, I think that one is is more political than anything. The opposition that's been raised has been, oh, take away Spirit and you take away low fares. I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, I, you know, we've seen uh, time after time after time, um, low fares come when there's when there are lots of seats in the market. Airline pricing is solely a supply and demand thing. You hear many people in the industry, oh, why don't they just raise prices um, and you know then they'd make money or that, that kind of thing. And the reality is they can't just raise prices. You got to fill airplanes uh, if, if they're in the market. And, uh, and sometimes you have to offer really low prices to do that. Uh, so 
I wouldn't be as as concerned about that. I'd be concerned more about the politics of, oh, gee, we hate to see a, uh, a low fare competitor go away. Uh, but I think in the end, um, that deal will get approved and uh, and will go forward. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Scott. Regular listeners will know that I have uh, talked about this a couple of times. I agree that the the American position is one of weakness. So is the DOJ case, I think, against the Northeast Alliance. So, mm-hmm. you know, week on week, something's going to pop out, but I don't think it's going to be um, – as kind of earth-shattering and as impactful as DOJ has tried to make this out to be. No, but I don't think the judge will throw it all out. Um, no, there, there will yeah. be some kind of parting gift. It, it, exactly. Well, one last time for me to thank our great sponsors, including Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more about what they do. And of course, our friends at Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company. Their widely respected team has been advising aviation clients around the world for more than 25 years. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. So guys, are we going to be talking as much about leisure travel a year from now? <laughs> Scott, you want to go first on this? Yeah, can we ban the word leisure? <laughs> just can can we get Webster or somebody to just say let's just not make that a word? Um, but but ter- terms aside, you know my feeling is um, leisure. Uh, uh, the blending of business and leisure trips has been going on for a long, long time. Um, I did it throughout most of my business travel, you know, life. Uh, you, you take you you go to Europe. You you take an extra weekend uh, to acclimate to to see. I I did a lot of sightseeing and and uh, enjoyed getting to see the world. You know, traveling for for stories uh, and and I think a lot of people doing that. I, I think uh, there is probably more of it. Um, we have. Uh, you know, people working from home um, uh, have more freedom to be in different places. Uh, they, they can take their family with them um, and, uh, and they're doing that more. So, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting trend, uh, poorly named, but we'll still be talking about it, certainly. Ben, what do you think? Well, I agree with Scott. I also heard another industry executive take a more cynical view of this, which is that it's in the airline's interest to push this as a term because knowing that all business traffic may not be coming back post-pandemic, one way to respond to that is to just expand the definition of what is a business trip. So if you take trips that used to be considered only leisure trips, but now can call them business trips because they have some business component, it might be possible for the airlines to not say that business traffic has shrunk at all. That's kind of cynical, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, it is. And, and, and Ben, I've heard you talk about the idea of airlines actually marketing 
um, to this of, of providing benefits. Uh, you know, this could go back to our frequent fire program discussion of, of you know, what if an, an airline said, hey, you want to take your family along? Here's a, here's a special frequent flyer deal. Um, you know, buy, buy a full fare business ticket and, and get three tickets for your family, you know, at half price or that kind of thing. Um, there could be a lot of opportunity here. I think that's right, Scott. And I think that could be continue into the packaging side of the business too, because think about the hotel that has a business contract with a company and they know that somebody's coming for a Wednesday to Friday event at the hotel. They could offer people coming to that event a weekend stay at the hotel with a rate only attached to the fact that they were there for business that they might not give to everyone else. So I think it becomes a whole packaging issue too, the airfare, the hotel, and maybe other things going on. So where do you file a bunch of guys going on a bachelor party trip uh, for monkey business? Is that a bleacher travel? kind of trip or, you know, what is that? There, I mean, there's just so many definitions of, you know, what could constitute business. I think it gets back to the earlier comment in the context of it's in the airline's interest to kind of talk up business travels taking place just in different ways. But um, it's kind of a, a made up term that's going to mean whatever people want it to mean. Yeah, and there there has been for corporate travel managers, there has been an issue with this for for years, where uh, you know there was the question of, hey, the employee uh, is is on a business trip, um, but goes skiing for a day, um, and you know if the employee breaks a leg, what's what's the uh, business, the corp, the company's responsibility? I think most companies have dealt with that. That's been a, a duty of care issue. Um, that has been running around for a long time. Um, so I think a lot of the policies are in place um, on the corporate end. Uh, it's just a question of the travel suppliers, airlines, hotels, uh, others um, figuring out now, uh, okay, what can we do with this? Chris, I think you're saying where do you draw the line is really important. Say there's a long weekend, like you said, Chris, that you and a bunch of buddies go to a popular destination to just have a lot of fun. But everybody individually, while they're there, maybe Friday afternoon or Monday morning or something, does a one-hour business-related Zoom call. Could each one of them rationalize that they did business on that trip? So therefore, the four-day weekend was a business trip? I think some people could. I mean, it really depends. It gets back to what we keep talking about, which is it depends and it's not very well defined. And, you know, if they also use their corporate travel tool to get a good rate on a rental car, which a lot of companies allow you to do, uh, for personal travel, then again, it gets classified as a business trip. So let's switch gears a second and think internationally. Scott, if you were re- still reporting, what is the top international aviation story you'd be most interested in reporting on right now and why? 
Chris, I, I think it would have to be the resiliency of, of the travel business um, internationally. Uh, it, e- even when we saw borders closed, uh, people still wanted to go. As things started to open, travel was really strong. As, as we've seen uh, a lot of disruption internationally uh, this year, um, travel's still been strong as we've seen a lot of economic headwinds with, the, with recession talk, with uh, war in Europe, um, all, all kinds of reasons why in the past uh, travel would have fallen off, um, but it hasn't. Uh, and so uh, I think, it, and, I, and I say that with the exception of Asia, which still hasn't um, come back strong. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think, I think this, this really is different this time around. And, and it's a bit of a generational change. I, I think um, millennials in particular are more interested, uh, you know, this, the stereotype is true. They're more interested in experience than, than things. Um, but what we've seen through the pandemic has been how important travel is in people's lives. And, uh, and they, it wasn't just um, revenge travel, wasn't just uh, sort of the, the pent up demand uh, from the pandemic, uh, I think we're we're past that. Um, and what we've seen is people just want to travel. And then, Ben, if you had the opportunity to lead an international airline right now, what would be your dream gig? You know, Chris, I'd probably say it would be to replace Michael O'Leary at Ryanair. <laughs> Not that Michael needs a replacement, but I just think Ryanair has been the standard for really democratizing aviation around the world. And they've done it for so long and they keep growing and they play the game well on the aircraft side and on the operation side and on the low fare side. They're such an interesting company. Michael's done a fabulous job running it. I would love to see if I could fill even part of those shoes. And I'm going to weigh in here and say that the situation at Schiphol in Amsterdam to me was Mm -hmm. the most fascinating with regard to what has always been a crown jewel in the international aviation system. It looks like the the government there in the Netherlands is not interested in preserving it and is prepared to let some of the role they play in international aviation go to other geographies in the, for the sake of their sustainability goals. I, I just find that totally fascinating, and I don't think we know where this is going to go. No, but I think you're right. Chris, in the sense that um, if you ask me what would be the aviation story of the year in five years, um, sustainability and and climate change uh, issues with aviation, no doubt about it. Yep. So then uh, the top aviation story of the year, real quick. Ben, you go first. You know, I'd have to say that it's something that hasn't been reported on much which is Boeing saying that they're not going to develop a new mid-size airplane until at least 2035. To me, that's an amazing statement. One of our biggest manufacturers, one of the proudest manufacturers of this country, is saying that when we're into 2030, 
they are still going to be marketing essentially a 1960s airplane, the 737, as their sort of primary answer for the midsize market. Now, I recognize that Airbus is also saying 2035 for their next mid-generation, but the A320 is 20 years newer than the 737. So as a worldwide aviation story, I think the fact that Boeing is basically punting on mid-size airplanes for another decade has implications that we won't even understand for a couple of years. And Scott, uh, what's your top aviation story? I think Ben's right on target. Um, I was talking to an airline executive uh, recently who was re- really sort of shocked that Airbus and Boeing have very similar timelines and and are really saying, um, we're not going to have new product uh, for you until 2040. And th- that has huge implications for the industry's climate goals. But I, I think a, a more immediate uh, story is uh, like like Ben's, um, completely underreported, but very interesting. And, the, and that's the, uh, the, the new leadership that we've seen in the industry. New CEOs at American and Southwest and Alaska, uh, n- not, no women among them. Um, Scott Kirby really shaking up the industry. Uh, I, I think it's, um, it's a fascinating time, and uh, we don't, haven't really explored the agenda for uh, Robert Isom or Bob Jordan and, uh, or looked at how they're going to deal with inherited uh, labor challenges. So the, the, the turnover at the top um, is, uh, is really fascinating, I think. Chris, what's your top story? I think it has to be the industry's performance th- since the summer. So you know, the, the hiring of so many people and the industry be, being able to absorb and train so many people so that we're at a place right now where, you know, Thanksgiving performed well. I think people are feeling good about the holidays and into 2023. But it, it's really amazing to think how many tens of thousands of new employees are in the business and how quickly uh, after a long period of understaffing, how quickly the airlines have been able to uh, bring these people up to speed to improve the operation because it was not a, in a good place, certainly at the beginning of the year. So let's close with a prediction, guys. Uh, but I want to make it interesting. I'm going to give you each $10,000 as a holiday gift. That's under the tax uh, under the tax uh, trigger for reporting it as a gift. But I, I want to give you each $10,000 with the provision you must invest it in an airline or aviation business interest. How are you going to use that to generate the best ROI a year from now? And why? Scott, you go first. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. Thank you for that very generous <laughs> gift. <laughs> so so here, here's what I would do. Um, and and I, I start with a disclaimer that um, don't ever listen to stock tips from me. Um, <laughs> I, I never never really did that as, as a journalist. Um, and uh, interestingly, I, I couldn't own airline stocks as a journalist now that uh, I've left the Wall Street Journal. I can do two things. I can make political contributions and, and I can own airline stocks and never could do that before. So with that disclaimer, I would say I would take the $10,000 and I would split it between Frontier and Spirit shares. 
both Spirit and Frontier are down about 30% from their 52-week highs, in general steeper declines than, than other airlines. And if I believe the Spirit JetBlue deal is going to close, um, which I do, uh, then the shares today, uh, which are worth less than $20, um, which can be bought for, for less than $20, uh, would be uh, redeemed by JetBlue for $33.50. So there's a potential 70% return there. And I believe that Frontier can benefit uh, from just, just from uh, continued leisure travel strength, uh, but also from being the only ULCC uh, in, in the country. There are plenty of headwinds here, uh, but you can see a scenario where um, if, if Spirit falters, that's good for Frontier. If Spirit JetBlue succeeds, that's good for Frontier. So uh, I think there's a, there's a potential uh, good return um, in both of those. You know, I'm going to split mine, too, and thank you, Chris, for this. But I think the best way to get return in this industry right now is to not invest in an airline, but in the companies trying to make the airlines better and more efficient. And to that end, we've talked to two people over the last year or so, Chris, that impressed me. One was the group at Duhop the group that using technology allows airlines to connect with all sorts of intermodal things. I think that's really smart and makes a lot of sense and many airlines will be using them. And the other is the company called Rise based in Detroit that is using drone technology to do aircraft inspections that used to be done by people, yet they can be done quicker and more accurately using drones with AI on them. I think both those companies have recognized places where the industry spends money and could spend less money and yet could be more efficient. So I'd give $5,000 to Rise and 5000 to Duhop. Okay, we'll check in uh, next December and see how you guys are doing. So with that, we're going to sign off. And as we sign off, I've got a few thank yous, if you'll indulge me a second. Uh, ben, first, thanks for the invitation to join you two years ago. And thanks for all the fun conversations we've had every week since then. To my family, thank you for your patience. As if managing PR for a cruise line during the pandemic wasn't enough to do, I then spent even more time at my desk researching, writing, and recording this podcast every week. And finally, to our listeners, thank you. It's been a privilege. Scott and Ben, I want to wish you the very best in 2023. You both are very smart and outstanding human beings that I'm proud to call friends, and I'm excited about where you're going to take this podcast. Well, Chris, thank you very much for two great years. Scott, I'm so excited about moving into 2023 with you as the co-host on this show. I think we can take this show to even greater heights and even more listeners. But Chris, I'm really going to miss talking to you every week through the show, but I hope we can at least keep talking. Maybe I'll send in a question once in a while. (laughs) And maybe we'll answer it. (laughs) And and thank you both. I couldn't be more excited to to join this. Uh, I just, I love it. I think it's terrific and uh, really excited to be part of it. Happy holidays. Happy New Year to everyone. 
Absolutely. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening and the best in 2023. See you in 2023 with more Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.